Welcome to The Crossing, the sermon podcast from Washington National Cathedral. We're so glad you're with us, and we hope this week's episode gives you comfort and inspiration. Be sure to check out our other Crossing podcast, Tower Talks, where you can find untold stories from cathedral docents, volunteers, staff, and artists who have each helped make the cathedral into the national treasure we all love. And now, enjoy this week's sermon. In the name of the risen Christ, amen. Let's be seated. Good morning. Happy Easter to you. What a, an honor it is for me to address you, and I am praying really hard that uh, my words may convey something of the Easter hope that God intends for you. And if my words falter, I am counting on the Spirit to speak directly to you with whatever, with whatever you most need to hear. To set the context of what I'd like to convey, let me begin with a few vignettes. They're mostly personal accounts, but as I speak, perhaps something similar or analogous will surface from your memory. The first one. When I stood on the south rim of the Grand Canyon for the first time, and then spent the next several days hiking down to the bottom and then back up again, I was completely undone by the majestic, wild, dangerous beauty of the place. And whatever the word sacred had meant to be before, it now had to take into account everything that my eyes beheld at every switchback. The Franciscan priest Richard Rohr sometimes speaks of creation as God's first incarnation. And the Grand Canyon had that impact on me. It was a revelation. And as I was leaving, I remember feeling strangely comforted by the fact that the canyon would always be there, and that no matter where I was, I could call the canyon to mind. I haven't been back for 30 years, but it remains for me this mystical place of connection that reminds me assures me that there is more to this world than I can see. In Celtic spirituality, you may know places like the Grand Canyon for me or other sacred spots for you. These places are called thin in the sense that whatever veil separates this world from what lies beyond it, beyond our understanding or awareness. The veil in that place is somehow transparent and porous. These are places where we seem to be able to connect to the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. And they confirm, at least for some of us, the ancient human intuition that there is, in fact, more, that there's another realm beyond this life. A thin place isn't always one of beauty. Gordon Cosby, who was one of the most influential 
mid-20th century pastors in Washington, D.C., he described a time when the veil was lifted for him on the battlefield of Normandy during World War II. As a chaplain, he buried hundreds of young soldiers, including his best friend. And as he stood at the grave of his friend, reading from scripture, he had a powerful revelation. That's what he called it, a revelation that there was life on the other side of the grave. He also realized that the majority of the young men he served in the military had little or no spiritual resources from which to draw in the hell that they had found themselves in. And so when he returned from the war, he set about to create a community of faith where people could develop a spirituality that was both really deep and really wide. He called it the Church of the Savior, one of the first truly interracial communities in Washington, D.C., dedicated to a ministry of deep spiritual growth and sacrificial service and commitment to justice. So these thin places, if you will, and experiences, they speak to us of a dual reality of life as we know it and life beyond what we know. And when we're in that place or have that experience, we sense the presence of that realm that we cannot yet enter, but we no longer doubt its existence. It's the second vignette. In late August and September of 2025, 2005, excuse me, 2005, the residents of New Orleans, Louisiana, and Mississippi experienced the ravages of Hurricane Katrina. And you may recall that nearly 2,000 lives were lost. Hundreds of thousands were displaced and damage to property and community infrastructure was truly catastrophic. And moreover, our national systems for crisis management failed those communities miserably. And it was clear for quite some time that for all the world to see, thousands of people in this country couldn't get clean water, much less adequate shelter and food. Now I was living, I was living in Minnesota at the time, just a few hours south of where the Mississippi River begins as this tiny trickle out of Lake Itasca. And that same river served as a peaceful backdrop to my life in Minneapolis. That same river that at the very same time was wreaking havoc on thousands of lives, just 2,000 miles south. And every time I passed that river or the tributary to it that was near our home, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that there were people who were suffering right then at the river's end. I could carry on my normal life, but I was somehow viscerally connected by that river to others who were experiencing incalculable hardship. Now, there are many ways you and I feel that same visceral connection to other people who in real time 
are experiencing life in a vastly different way than we are. And perhaps right now you have family or friends or you yourself have lived in a part of the world that is at war now or experiencing famine or some other hardship. And you're here and there's this urgency inside you, a desperation almost to do something for those that we love or care about. In part, in large part, because we're fine and they're not. And that disparity, that's what I'm asking you to think about, that disparity moves us to do noble and sacrificial things. It stirs in us one of the most important attributes of the human soul, which is empathy. And empathy, it's like a muscle, you know? As we exercise it, it grows stronger. And that's not by accident. We were made that way for a reason. More on that a bit later, but one final vignette. And this time, um, once as a neighbor, as a favor, excuse me, to a neighbor, I agreed to preside at a wedding of a couple I didn't know very well. It was the sister of my neighbor and her soon-to-be husband. Lovely outdoor wedding, not especially religious except for me, but it was beautiful, as most weddings are. And after the ceremony, this young woman approached me and introduced herself and asked if we could talk. And when I said yes, she immediately burst into tears. You see, she had once dated the groom. And the, while the romantic side of their relationship didn't last, they were, they were still friends, she said. And she genuinely liked the, man, the woman that her former partner had married. But she was still single, and she was lonely, and she had dreaded attended, attending the wedding, and it was just as hard as she feared it would be. But then she said through her tears, you know, still, still I'm glad I'm here, you know? I really am. I wanted to be here for them, to celebrate their joy. And that, I think, is one of the most poignant expressions of our capacity to hold two disparate realities at once, that in our sorrow, we can be genuinely glad for another's happiness. It's like the love of a dancer or an athlete who is sidelined because of an injury, who nonetheless is present on the to be there to cheer on those who are able to fulfill the dream that is now denied them. Or it's the love of parents who realize that what they have to give their children isn't what their children want. And yet even in that dejection, they offer their blessing. So, if you're, if you're still with me, with all those vignettes in mind, here's what I'd like to say about the meaning of this day. We'll never fully understand it, but we experience its power as we hold 
seemingly opposite realities together. Life in this world, what lies beyond? Our capacity to feel the sufferings of another to such a degree that we are moved to take them on as our own. Being willing to share another's joy even when we're grieving. Easter lands there. Richard Rohr describes this mystery as the body of Christ being crucified and resurrected at the same time. That's not a historical assertion, but it's a mystical one. An act or a way of being that unites death to life, this world to the next, reaching down to the deepest human sorrow and raising us up to whatever joy is possible on the other side of the greatest loss. It's, it's amazing. But what we need to remember when we consider all of this is that Jesus, before the resurrection, was, for those who knew him, a human embodiment of a thin place, right? Before he died, people in his presence couldn't stop thinking that they were in the presence of God. One scholar, Houston Smith, describes it this way. This is how he describes Jesus. He circulated easily and without affectation among ordinary people and social misfits. He healed them, counseled them, helped them out of chasms of despair. He went about doing good. And he did so with such single-mindedness and effectiveness that those who were in his presence found their estimate of him consistently modulating to a new key. They found themselves thinking, that if divine goodness were to manifest itself in human form, this is what it would look like. And then he died. He died a cruel and vindictive death, and his followers were devastated, not simply because they loved him and because he was such a good man, but because they had hoped he was so much more. We had hoped, this is just a little bit later in the Easter narrative, we had hoped, one said, that he would be the one to redeem, to redeem us all. And that's why the empty tomb is such a powerful place. It became a thin place for the women who went to care for Jesus' body early that morning. It was a holy, sacred place. They hadn't encountered Christ. They were terrified, as you heard. And there were these men telling them to go back to Galilee, which is where they came from, and that Jesus would meet them there, which made no sense. But they, but they knew. They were on sacred ground, that the veil between this world and the next was lifted, and that Jesus now was somehow moving freely between those two realities. And the reason we're 
here today, friends, in this cathedral, is that for those who follow him, he still moves between those realms for us. Whatever happened on that first Easter morning, Christ is now and forever a spiritual being in the realm that lies beyond us who was with us and our reality in all of its heartbreaking and wondrous complexity and contradiction. That's what Christians believe. It's what Christians experience. It's what any of us can know if we let him in. But there's another dual reality on Easter, and this is the juxtaposition between grief and joy. There's no getting around it. And so, if you're not feeling especially joyful today, um, you're in pretty good company. Because the women, if you noticed, at the tomb weren't particularly joyful either. It takes time for new life to rise from death. It takes time for grief to ease. But if you are feeling joyful, for Jesus' sake, shield your joy and savor it. For even in times of great sorrow and struggle, there is a place for laughter, for connection, for goodness. And when they're given to us, we need to claim them, lest the world keep us forever anxious and afraid. There's a great line from the poet Gwendolyn Brooks, first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize, and, and she says, even if you are not ready for day, for me, it cannot always be night. That was her way of saying to all those who would keep her down, no one is going to steal this joy. Which brings me back at last now to the ways we're connected to one another. For while resurrection is about God and what God does, we too can live. It's about us and how we live. What one of my colleagues calls a resurrection-shaped life. By grace, we too can be for others in certain moments walking thin places. Whenever we show up, whenever we reach across the disparities of human existence with a love that shows no partiality, that's focused on doing good and offering, when we can, our blessing. So when your heart is breaking for what another is going through, follow where your heart leads. That's resurrection working in you. Go to the places when you feel called to, to where love is needed and offer what you have. That is resurrection working in you. And wherever there is joy, celebrate and protect it, even if it's not yours. That's resurrection working in you. 
Be open to the people and places that help you believe that there is another realm beyond this life. And trust that when the time comes, Jesus will be there to help you cross over. But in the meantime, you are here, as am I, called to live with compassion and love. We can't do this on our own or perfectly, and, and we aren't meant to. Resurrection is God's work, and it's happening right now in all the wounded and sacred places of our lives and of this world, but we can be part of it whenever and however we choose to receive it for ourselves and then turn and offer what we can in a resurrection-shaped life. May it be so. Amen.